When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, guys, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. I hope everyone is out there staying warm, first of all, because it's been like <laughs> extremely cold and we just had. Well, I just had here in Nashville just like a like a shit ton of snow just drop on us through the whole entire state. I'm, Most of the country I'm, seems I'm, to be frozen. We're living in a true winter wonderland right now. I don't know exactly how that works, but um, but here we are. So so continuing getting back into doing shows regularly now. Uh, we have Recluse with us who really needs no introduction recluse has been on the show quite a lot he's been a part of our strange realities conference for the like the last three years and um and if you guys also should know him from the farm podcast as well but he has a new book out um called the art book one the secret history of psy war conspiratainment and the shattering of reality and uh, when I first saw the cover of this book, which of course I'm showing it, but no one is going to see it on the podcast, but you know, it's very we'll, cool. We'll, we'll put it, we'll put something on there in the graphic. But uh, when I first saw the cover of this book, I actually thought this was like a, a graphic novel whenever, <laughs> whenever I saw it. And uh, I actually, uh, right at the end of the conference th- this last year, I went ahead and bought it from, from Mr. Recluse. Uh, Same here. And uh, been reading it in preparation for this interview. So, Stephen, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, man. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on. And uh, yeah, just God bless my peeps in Wisconsin, man. I've been uh, looking at the weather reports from out there. I mean, it's it's bad in a lot of the U.S. as we're uh, recording this, but yeah, that there's uh, was it negative twenty six degrees with the wind chill. That's brutal. And yeah. uh, having uh, been out there in Milwaukee area and experienced that wind off of the Great Lakes during winter time, it, it's no joke, man. Uh, everybody in that area—Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois—and uh, stay warm, folks. I know it's been really rough on you guys out there. Yeah, well, hopefully yeah. by the time this is out, everybody will be warm. So yeah, here's hoping everybody's uh, thawed out a little bit. Yeah, the, 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 this little mini ice age will have. Hopefully, ended. Uh, you know, both of our podcasts can give people some entertainment if they're kind of you know stuck at home too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And imagine there's a lot of people snowed in right about now. So 
Yeah, for sure. I I have been for like the last two days, basically. I mean, I took the took the car out um, just for a little bit today because some of the main roads are scraped, but not a lot of the back roads are. So just uh, yeah, downtime but, is always a great time to explore these parapolitical mysteries, though. Indeed, indeed, they are. Yes, and uh, well, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about primarily about this book and. Um, you know, a question that I ask people whenever they write a book or, or they've got a book to talk about is what's, what was on your mind when you wanted to write this book? And this is also is said the art book one. So there's going to be, I think two more. So what, what's your plan for the series of the books? What, what, what do you want to accomplish with the series? Well, getting back to like your first point, this actually started, I think, is what was going to be kind of like an extended essay. I was thinking, you know, I would do something on the history of QAnon and how it developed. And yeah, you know, it'd be like 30, 40,000 words or something like that, a real quickie, you know. Um, and I think I started working on it in late 2020. I think by about 2022, when I was about 150,000 words into it. I was like, yeah, this is this is not going to be remotely quick if that hadn't already set in by this point in time. And not only that, but I needed to start reconceiving it from just a single work into multiple works because at this point, you know, I'm entering into war and peace territory, basically. It's just, it was way too much information, I think, for one tome. So uh, that led to kind of a prolonged period of like writer's block and trying to figure out how to divide it up and then finally uh i kind of had a eureka moment about a little over a year ago yeah when it finally sort of dawned on me how it would work as a trilogy and that kind of like put my ass into motion again okay. and got the first book done so that uh and then i have a pretty good chunk of the third book ready already it's going to be the second one which is going to require a lot of work because i've got to really go back and start um getting into the history of rosicrucianism which god god help me goes all the way back to like the franciscans and just a lot of other stuff so it's going to be a bit of a, a research project with that but i mean hopefully once i get over sort of the hump of the kind of early historical stuff it'll start uh, flowing a lot smoother and again a good chunk of book three is already ready so yeah here's hoping it'll be done in the next couple of years at least okay well what's the what's the overarching theme of these three books like what what what's the what is the um what is the idea behind them that you want to explore well, the more I worked on it, I think it just dawned on me fundamentally the real, the heart of the theme of the work is really the nature of reality, uh, how we conceive it, how it's manipulated, and whether it can be totally destroyed and recreated, which I think is a process that we're currently all living through right now. So this was going to be my attempt to kind of explore the early history of this, especially with an emphasis on how it's manipulated especially through uh the various arts and different groups that have focused on these manipulations and of course with the first book the title's a bit of a a giveaway but the first book i 
really wanted to focus on the psychological warfare aspect of this and then getting into the second book kind of following the development of conspiratainment and its origins really in Russia Crucianism and a lot of more occultic traditions concerning the use of the arts. And then book three is where things start getting really weird. Okay. So well, let's, let's talk a little bit about kind of like the idea of um, conspiratainment and what you kind of mean by that. Well, I think that, I mean, especially in the last, I would say, oh, maybe let's say since the 80s or so, you've really seen a major evolution in uh, conspiracy circles. And I think it's sort of like marked a divide between what I would think of as more of a parapolitical approach that usually dominated more um, attempts at alternative history or fringe subjects uh, in the immediate onset of the Cold War. Um, and this is also true, I would say, of like ufology as well. For instance, a lot of the early ufologists tend to be uh, more nuts and bolts types with former scientific backgrounds and so forth. And getting into the 1980s, I feel like you went through kind of the uh, the Bill Cooperization, if you will, of conspiracy culture, where it became almost more of like a, a kind of shock jock thing, where you were trying to come up with these more outlandish concepts. And then, you know, kind of going all the way back uh, to the late 60s. Uh, you had the introduction of discordianism into it. And that started to become much more prevalent as well by the 1980s to the extent that conspiracy theories were effectively being used as a kind of art form to create fiction, often uh, with those being exposed to it unaware of this. So this has sort of turned into a garden industry over the years. I mean, certainly by the 90s, a lot of this was drifting into mainstream culture. You know, you see it with the rise of things like the X-Files, for instance. And now, I mean, it really has become a kind of garden industry, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is really laying the the foundation of where we're at today and like what would all contribute to that with the growth of conspiratainment and how Psy War plays into all that. Yeah, because again, also, you know, you have to take into account the manipulations that have been done by various actors for the purposes of psychological warfare. And it's certainly it's not always been government entities either. I mean, a big uh, group that I focused on and this work was uh, the Institute for American Strategy, which even though it came out of uh, conferences held um, that were sponsored by the National Security Council and the Pentagon, it was effectively a private agency uh, that was using military-grade psychological warfare techniques to train political cadres in the United States. So you had, I mean, almost from the beginning as well, a lot of these uh, powerful corporations and other private actors who were engaged in this, you know, massive psychological warfare assault on the American public effectively to inoculate us with a form of uh, rather militant anti-communism. And they really did so by hook or by crook, if you will. Well, let's talk about that. So you talk about two main um two main agencies here you talk about the asc american um was the security council american security council and the ias that you just mentioned and these two things well what well, you talk about the ias so what is the american security council what how does this come in well the american security council was 
kind of contrary to what we had thought for a lot of years, more of an outgrowth of the IAS. But um, so a lot of this goes back to the mid 1950s and these conferences I was talking about. They were called the uh, National Military Industrial Conferences, and they were sponsored by uh, the National Security Council, the Pentagon, and a lot of major uh, corporations involved in the defense industry, like Lockheed, Boeing, you know, this kind of thing, Honeywell. And effectively, it was to come up with a form of political inoculation for both elites and the American public on the whole as we went into the glory days of the Cold War. So the IAS was really the psychological warfare bureau, if you will, that was developed to really uh, uh, test these techniques and develop them. And then the American Security Council was sort of the front group for this that really pushed a lot of this stuff at the grassroots level it was uh originally had actually started out as sort of a glorified pinkerton outfit and then after it became involved with the ias it had essentially a joint function so on the one hand it uh provided security files for a lot of the same companies uh, that were involved in the defense industry, you know, so they were doing personnel checks and all this other kind of stuff. So it's, you know, basically it's a myth in America that the blacklist only existed for a brief period of time in Hollywood and that type of thing. In point of fact, anybody who wants to work for a major corporation, especially one dealing in the defense industry in any real capacity, is going to put be put through a security check. And right. during the heyday of the Cold War, it was institutions like the American Security Council that were tasked with compiling these dossiers on average Americans for the corporations. So this is a big part of what they did, and some of the sources they used for this were very uh, controversial, to put it mildly. Uh, one was, I think his name was Harry Young, who was a veteran um, you know, labor buster going back to like the pre-World War II era. Um, he had been affiliated with a lot of the native fascist movements in the United States in the lead up to the Second World War. So they were pulling these files from, you know, let's just say some pretty right wing sources to begin with, the kind of people that uh, saw anybody, you know, to the left of Joseph McCarthy as being a die in the wool communist effectively. So this is part of what they were doing, and they compiled a lot of these dossiers. I mean, I think at the heyday around 1970, they had files on something like four or five million Americans, if I'm not mistaken. So this is a big part of what they did. And, and then these, the are, other- these are non-governmental organizations, because yeah. this yeah, really they- fits into what you're talking about, this network of coordination between you know public and private, government, non-government, industry groups, um, groups representing these uh, military industrial complex oriented companies. And so it's this like murky interface of this non-governmental often secret world with the actual government. Yeah. And then it's, you know, to even kind of further muddy the waters, like the original people behind uh, the agency prior to the AC, I think it was like called the Mid-Atlantic Research Group or something like that. But the the top guy, and it was a dude named John Fisher, who was the longtime president of the ASC, and he was an ex-FBI guy, like a lot of the early executives with the American Security Council. And then um, another major partner with them in compiling these files for years was the American Legion, 
which again, mm. I'm sure everybody listening yes. to this knows was a big veterans group. So you're essentially using a lot of like ex-FBI and military personnel to compile these dossiers in the first place. Yeah. So that's kind of like another interesting thing about it is it's, you know, kind of this network of ex, you know, military intelligence officers that are also being put to work in, uh, you know, basically this uh, crypto form of blacklisting. Kind of like deputizing these people and creating this kind of snitch culture. Yeah, exactly. Because again, you know, you're American Legion. Well, I mean, where are they getting some of this information from? I mean, a lot of it is like from Legion posts and stuff like that. I mean, people don't really realize, but they essentially were using uh, the Legion effectively to monitor a lot of uh, people and then also Legion members. I mean, at the uh, the various factories and that kind of thing that they worked with, I mean, to monitor the conversations that their co-workers were having, all this other kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it was really insidious. And that was, you know, kind of the more mundane, quote unquote, day to day stuff that the ASC was doing. Then on the other hand, um, they were effectively the major lobby group for the military industrial complex so this was you know cons uh, consisted of a massive effort of public relations for the industry supporting various wars and generally keeping the uh, the war machine running if you will and that was where a lot of the techniques that the ias came into play where you're applying these psychological warfare method methods to uh, drum home the necessity of the Cold War to the American public and supporting, you know, any number of conflicts across the world during the heyday of the Cold War. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of stuff like that going on. And then to kind of go back to the uh, the Institute for American Strategy, another big factor with it, uh, besides some of the techniques that it uh, basically pioneered, such as fourth generational warfare. I mean, everybody thinks that was kind of a newer invention, but um, the head of the IAS, Frank Barnett, had developed essentially an identical concept called fourth dimensional warfare that they were uh, training a lot of these political cadres that there was at the Freedom Studies Center, the college that the IAS had set up with the American Security Council. But anyway, another thing that Barnett and the IAS did that was really significant is he put together the donor network that launched the new right this is jane Mayer's whole you know dark money uh, thing if you will mm -hmm. barnett started out managing the funds for the smith richardson foundation then later he became the major money manager for richard mellon scafe's uh contributions and then also with the Coors family and he put together this donor network that became so integral going into the 1970s and launching the new right and ultimately what became the Reagan revolution. So that's another big legacy of this. It was both uh, developing means of uh, really promoting a much harder right-wing view to the American public on the one hand, while also putting together a network of funding to support it going into uh, the latter years of the Cold War. Because publicly facing both of these were, were presenting themselves as, as mostly policy groups, so you've, you, for anyone who's not familiar with, you know, you've you talked about the ASC a lot previously, but it's a good way to think about it is that it's the right wing counterpart to council formulations. Yeah. Um, so basically anyone, you know, seems like involved in any kind of influential uh, position within foreign policy establishment or the military was usually either ASC or CFR, it seems like. 
Yeah, they were kind of like counterbalances to one another, if you will. Though, I mean, I suppose in a sense you could say maybe the, uh, well, I guess it would maybe be closer to like something like the Pilgrim Society, but sort of the older, more prestigious group behind uh, the ASC and the IAS for that matter as well. And a lot of these other groups like the John Birch Society was um, the good old National Association of Manufacturers. I'm sure you guys have heard oh. of that from Doc Future, but um. You know, yeah, that, I was going to ask you what the influence was the, from the National Association of Manufacturers. Well, NAM was a big part of putting together the uh, National Military Industrial Conferences. And NAM, going back to the 30s and 40s, was huge in uh, developing you know, various public relations techniques to promote, uh, really, I should say more so to protect a lot of the major industrialists going into the Great Depression and so forth. So they were already, I mean, really studying a lot of these techniques of psychological warfare, and especially as it uh, applies to more of a grassroots uh, level. Because again, the National Association of Manufacturers was always the major counterbalance and rival of the New York-based groups like this Council on Foreign relations and the pilgrim society and these groups the cfr and the pilgrims had a stranglehold on mainstream media from pretty much the beginning they were very well acquainted with members of the new york times and a lot of the other major journals they had a lot of uh, influence in hollywood from very much the beginning and so forth so they had a tremendous means of shaping popular popular culture through uh these mainstream institutions so the national association of manufacturers had to really devise ways of disseminating their propaganda through the grassroots levels this led them you know on the one hand into embracing what were at the time you know somewhat revolutionary techniques like radio uh which was a big thing for them and it really laid the foundation for um you know the later conservative radio bonanza going into the 80s with Rush Limbaugh, you sort of have like, yeah. uh, what's his name, Clarence Mansion is sort of the gap between these two eras. He was another figure big with the National Association of Manufacturers, early uh, advocate of the John Birch Society, major conservative radio personality for years, and kind of the proto Rush Limbaugh, if you will. So, yeah, all of this stuff is like, these seem like pioneering efforts that definitely bore fruit and kind of shaped like the entire what's now the establishment right yeah very much so and i mean nam has always been you know the establishment right i mean going all the way back and again it's not just these you know families like the cokes or something like that that we think of i mean a major uh family behind the national association of manufacturers for years was the dupont family in fact uh the records of uh the national association of manufacturers are actually at one of the um dupont personal collections in delaware remarkably uh but lamont dupont and some of the other family members were just huge huge contributors to nam for years so there were some really hefty uh american dynasties that were backing this for a good point a good chunk of the 20th century and probably still on some level Yeah, that's for sure. Um, there is, so you talk about in the book, there's, there's a connection between these two groups and some other groups, but what is the, what is the association that you're drawing between these kind of mind control programs like MK Ultra, Artichoke, Bluebird, what have you, those type of programs? 
Well, see, that was the other thing with the Institute for American Strategy is they had individuals that were uh, connected with MK Ultra, specifically James Monroe, Colonel James Monroe, who uh, was the president for the Society for Investigation of Human Ecology. That was the funding conduit for MK Ultra, and from what I've been able to gather, there are strong indications that they were essentially trying to apply the techniques of MK Ultra to psychological warfare. Effectively, this was uh, Naomi Klein's concept of the shock doctrine, if you will, where you could essentially induce a kind of fugue state into the subject where you could then reprogram their belief system or their ideology or something to that effect. And that's where I think uh, conspiracy theories proved to be very fruitful for this approach to psychological warfare, because oftentimes when people do encounter this stuff, it can be absolutely earth shattering to their worldview, especially, I mean, if you're encountering stuff that is uh, a legitimate government scandal. I mean, for instance, yeah. um, CIA complicity in drug trafficking, for instance. I mean, there's really no question that this happened, you know, now. I mean, anybody who denies this is delusional. I mean, there's so many sure. uh, compelling sure. evidence of this now. I mean, it's ridiculous. Both th Southeast Asia and Central America. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, this is, you know, just the kind of thing that you know, when you still had that more uh, naive view of the U.S. government at the security services and you stumble onto something like that, I mean, it can be a thing. Um, but that's, you know, the problem. I mean, on top of that, though, there's a lot of illegitimate research that goes into this that has the same kind of effect on people. And uh, when you look at, especially, again, since the kind of Bill Cooperization of conspiracy culture in the 80s, a lot of it has had kind of a hard right and or libertarian worldview to it. And arguably, it's been used to subtly nudge people in that direction after they've been sort of lured into that fugue state from the initial shock, if you will. Yeah, that's the the reorientation phase in that, in that framework, right? Yeah. And I mean, I should point out, too... Uh, you know, it's not just, you know, like a group like the John Birch Society that's doing this. I mean, a lot of people don't realize this, but like the Church of Scientology or Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, these guys are really invested in a lot of this New World Order style uh, propaganda as well. I mean, for instance, uh, Ezra Taft Benson, uh, who was part of the Quim, I believe, uh, in the Mormon Church, was a really big advocate of a lot of like John Birch Society type literature during his heyday. And I mean, the Church of Scientology has also heavily used a lot of these kinds of conspiracy theories. So, you know, you have these groups that maybe could be characterized in a certain sense as cults, uh, with all due respect, um, basically using some of this literature as a means to indoctrinate their members with. So, you know, again, I know this is something that a lot of people in the quote-unquote truth community or whatever want to live in denial of, but I mean, frankly, a lot of very suspect groups have been using your standard uh, NWO-type uh, tracks for years as a way of, you know, essentially indoctrinating their membership. So that should be really telling especially in a post q world if you will yeah it has a big relationship to you know establishing an alternative worldview and that can 
be a, a religion or, or a cult or anything like that. Yeah. So what? you are viewing conspiracy theory as uh, an aspect of the art, like uh, psychological warfare is, myth building, and the exploitation of uh, superstition. Yeah, well, I mean, especially because a lot of conspiracy theory is, in a sense, a kind of myth building. I mean, I think especially when you get into the uh, the more, you know, kind of new agey or UFO-centric ones, because in a lot of cases, this stuff is, well, I mean, frankly, it's really the same thing with like a lot of the, you know, the hardline anti-communist or any Jewish conspiracy theories. I mean, essentially all of these are trying to create this elaborate mythos of how human history, human governments have been manipulated by gray aliens or Jewish cabals or communist cabals or something to that effect, if you will. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do think that in a lot of ways it is all in a sense an exercise in building a mythology uh, which is certainly a major component of a, any kind of serious movement, if you will. And how does that relate to psychological warfare? And um, you, you mentioned this 1950 Rand report that really highlights, you know, an early um, interest in exploiting superstitions and other things like, you know, would probably apply to something like conspiracy theory as well. Well, I think the big figure with a lot of that uh, was General Edward Lansdale, who really was the pioneer for America's approach to psychological warfare in a lot of uh, different capacities into the Cold War. But Lansdale's big thing was the use of mythology to be weaponized for the purposes of psychological warfare. And he really pioneered of uh, this technique in the Philippines, which was the first significant uh, counterinsurgency that the United States waged during the Cold War. And it was really the one that served as the foundation for later counterinsurgencies that we fought, such as in Vietnam, or we did so did so through proxies, such as through uh, you know, Project Condor or something to that effect. But anyway, getting back to land. Ansdale. So yeah. he's studying the Philippines. Uh, one of his major uh, 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 secondary officers, um, gosh, what was the guy? Uh, Charles Bohannon. He was actually a Smithsonian trained anthropologist. Uh, so this guy was very astute as well when it came to different indigenous mythologies. And they started looking at the Philippines and they came up with what Lansdale charitably referred to as a low humor approach to psychological warfare. So this consisted of rounding insurgents up, draining them of blood and hanging them in trees uh, so that the their fellow insurgents would believe that they had been killed by vampires or recording a confession from an insurgent and then having it played back uh, through loudspeakers from planes after that insurgent had turned up dead to try to convince uh, the hooks that they were being haunted by the ghosts of this dead insurgent who was telling them how awful the afterlife was going to be for supporting the communist forces. Which or was reminiscent of what was going to later happen to Operation Phoenix with the one yeah, soul stuff. 
Yeah. yeah, which was actually directly was directly an outgrowth of what they were doing with that in the Philippines. There, they were using like helicopters and so forth. But yeah, it was the same exact principle. And but the time we got into Vietnam, like I was kind of shocked to see this, but this stuff had like literally uh, been institutionalized into like psychological warfare manuals that they were giving out to army officers in Vietnam. So. <laughs> You know, this was like the norm all the time already by the time we got to Vietnam, essentially. So we're already doing all this other kooky stuff, like painting Masonic all-seeing eyeballs on the doors of suspected insurgents. And then going into Vietnam, they took that like the next step with the death cards. Um, so they had this belief, I guess, that if the third eye was mutilated, it would you know, in Vietnam, it would affect like the soul's reincarnation or something that effect. So they would go through after they had killed insurgents and they would like literally nail death cards on their foreheads over the third eye. Like the uh, pineal gland. The pineal yeah. gland, exactly, to play right. into that, you know, superstitions. I mean, we were already doing all this kind of stuff by the Vietnam era. And as I started researching this more and more and saw just how heavily institutionalized it was in military doctrine started to beg the question in my mind well would we have just done this overseas or would we have stopped at doing it here and we would have stopped here doing it domestically right and again frankly i don't think so and going back to lansdale uh he was quite a student of the methods the communists used and one of the major aspects that he uh, embraced wholeheartedly was the concept of political cadres. And essentially, these are non-uniformed military officers that are going into the villages, essentially posing as villagers and this kind of thing to try and indoctrinate the um the inhabitants in communism and he thought that we needed something like that here and yeah. within the army and effectively this is actually what civil civil affairs does in the military a lot of people don't know that but we actually have our own political cadres within civil affairs which again are usually comprised of retired military officers that are used in these kind of quote-unquote hearts and minds operations but lansdale long uh claimed that we needed full-blown political cadres in the United States that could work essentially as civilians while carrying out these psychological warfare op operations. And that sounds a lot like these Ugh. networks that we we're just talking about connected to the ASC and the IAS. Well, exactly, because Zansdell became involved with the Institute for American Strategy, and he helped set up that school that they had, the Freedom Studies Center. And uh, this was based um, out of uh, Virginia, not too far from D.C., and effectively they trained a lot of uh, future uh, new rights advocates at these schools, at this school. So... You know, again, you're kind of left with the unsettling prospect that, I mean, a lot of the new right had been instructed in a lot of these military-grade psychological warfare techniques by people like Lansdale, or at least based on the same kind of stuff that he was doing overseas in the Philippines and then later in Vietnam. And in Lansdale's case, it's even more insidious, I think, because uh, one of his biggest accolades towards the end of his official military career uh, was Daniel Ellsberg. 
uh, going all the way back, you know, up to like 2018, Ellsberg was still a fanatical devotee of Lansdale. I mean, when Max Boone interviewed him for uh, his biography of Lansdale, he said that he loved Lansdale, that he was in the cult of Edward Lansdale. So Ellsberg becomes this huge figure in the anti-war movement after he comes back from Vietnam, he leaks the Pentagon Papers and all this other kind of stuff. And he ends up making it out to Hollywood where he hooks up with this producer, Bert Snyder, uh, who kind of cut his teeth as the visionary behind uh, the monkeys, uh, both the band and the TV series that was used to produce them. Then uh, he did the film Head with Bob Raffleson, which Jack Nicholson wrote. And then effectively, they launched the modern uh, American independent film industry with Easy Rider, and then a lot of the other films subsequently that Schneider produced back in this era, like uh, Five Easy Pieces, The Last Picture right. Show, and all this yeah. other stuff. So At the beginning of the new Hollywood. Exactly. But see, besides doing all of this, he's also sponsoring Ellsberg, but he's also sponsoring Huey Newton and the Black Panthers, a major yeah. financial contributor. And he's sponsoring the Yippies, Abby Hoffman, and all these other people. So he's here working with Ellsberg, who was a good friend of his. In fact, he was one of his only real remaining friends going into the 90s when Bird had really fallen on hard times. And to my mind, this, you know, again, raises the question, well, Ellsberg, you know, really uh, was unabashed about his uh, support of Lansdale, and he never broke off the relationship with Lansdale, even after he became a whistleblower. So in theory... You know, this is a way that the United States' premier psychological warfare officer could have been manipulating the new left as well as the new right through well, a lot of these different institutions. Well, let, let me ask you this. I mean, the, the, so I, I'm tr trying to kind of figure out the implication of Ellsberg. I mean, Ellsberg, best known, of course, for the Pentagon Papers. And you're, you're right. Ellsberg is not someone that I know when I think of a right winger, I don't, I don't think of Daniel Ellsberg quite the, quite the opposite. Was there some kind of operation going on with the Pentagon papers? Was this something that was, uh, that some in Vietnam, maybe even some that were sympathetic to Lansdale, like you mentioned, John Paul van, who of course, who of course is like the subject of a very famous book from the eighties about Vietnam. Uh, that possibility that he may have been the one to release the papers, but he dies. And yeah, Van was another guy who was really close to Ellsberg. Right. Too. So, uh, is there an implication here that you know this could have been just some that this was released by people that might have been more in the know um, in Vietnam? Yeah, I think that that's very much the case. I mean, Lansdale is usually depicted as being very anti-Kennedy, but I, the more I looked into that, I actually think that, that was more of a mythos that Lansdale himself had built up. Uh, he actually had pretty close relations with the Kennedys and a lot of the Kennedy faction uh, within uh, the civilian government. So anyway, as it pertains to the Pentagon Papers, there is uh, some pretty strong indications that because the Pentagon Papers were originally compiled during the LBJ presidency between, I think, like roughly like 66 and 67, 68, right? Right. And, they had more to do. I mean, Nixon was worried about the Pentagon Papers, but they but had yeah. 
had way more to do with his predecessors than they actually did to him. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So they were compiled during this era, and there was a thinking that the Kennedy loyalists in the White House were looking to leak them in 68 to force LBJ to step aside so that Robert Kennedy could get the nomination. Uh, now, LBJ ended up uh, taking the initiative and stepping aside anyway, and it seemed like you know RFK was to get the nomination until he was assassinated uh so from there the pentagon papers kind of got rabbit hold for a couple of years and it was really going into the early 70s when they started to leak out and then it's kind of interesting too because this is sort of concurrent with um alfred mccoy starting to do his research uh into drug trafficking in southeast asia of course he was the author of the famous the politics of heroin in southeast asia which was the first yeah. scholarly su subject on cia drug trafficking and the guy who originally told him where to go in laos to look into all this was edward lansdale and his cohorts like Lucy and Cohen and so forth. So these guys were really starting, a lot of these officers with Lansdowne connected, or Lansdowne himself and connected to him were really starting to leak out a lot of this sensitive material uh, going into the Nixon administration. I think that what triggered a lot of this is because Lansdale, even though he was more closely connected to the sort of liberal establishment, if you will, around the Council on Foreign Relations and the Kennedys, he despised Europe. Uh, he had spent pretty much all of his career in Asia, waging various wars there. And this was true of a lot of the officers around him. Yeah. And I think a lot of them were felt profoundly betrayed by Nixon's pivot to China. Um, you know, essentially the whole normalization of relations with uh, Henry Kissinger started. Uh, and that really brought out the wrath of these guys. And to my mind, they were definitely working with other elements of the far right, i.e. the American Security Council, and trying to bring down Nixon as a result of um, essentially pursuing detente with China. Because this was huge. Yeah. Back then, I mean, a major source of funding for the far right was uh, the China lobby, which was largely centered around Taiwan. So Nixon's whole policy there was, again, it was seen as a major betrayal on the one hand by many elements of the far right and then on the other hand by a lot of um more liberal elements of the establishment but those who had been very committed to u.s intervention in asia so a lot of people were pissed off at nixon at that point around like the early yeah. 70s and this kind of fits into this whole uh carl oglesby uh yankees versus cowboys kind of thing whereas this you have this Eastern establishment that's more Atlanticist oriented and internationalist. And then this like military industrial complex, uh, South West to West coast, Asian oriented Imperial. Like you said, these guys had all these experience in these Asian wars, uh, factions. So what you're talking about are these, you know, we may be seeing kind of the shadows of these internal factions, battling it out with these leaks yeah and i mean that's really very much what was happening i mean essentially that's that's always been the purpose of leaks if you really want to get down to it in dc i mean it's always a sign of some kind of interceding warfare between one group or other in dc I mean, it's well i mean i take that back i mean there are also occasionally times when you have leaks essentially for the purposes of psychological warfare i mean right 
recently, you know, you had the, oh gosh, I think it was just a couple of days ago, the German government, um, or I should say the German military leaked uh, essentially their uh, future projections for a war with Russia, like in 2025 or something like that. In this case, they're basically trying to scare the hell out of the public to get them to continue financially supporting Ukraine. But more often than not, when you do have a leak, it's basically to air the dirty laundry of one side or another in some kind of internal squabble over policy. Right. While we're still on the periphery of Lansdale, um, you you know point out that when we think about these abuses of government agencies on the uh, on the domestic population, um, we think of like you know the CIA and things that came out in the Church Committee and things like that. But psychological warfare itself is operational and is has more to do with the military and. You know, Lansdale was an Air Force officer and other military people were really involved uh, through these private networks with, you know, what you think was going on internally as well. Yeah, well, I mean, another really big revelation for me when I was researching Lansdale was discovering that he was essentially the visionary behind uh, the modern-day Special Operations Command and the Joint Special Operations Command. A lot of his accolades were really responsible for setting that up uh, during the 1980s. And again, you know, this is within the Special Operations community. I mean, there are essentially three components of it. Of course, you know, we all kind of know and love like the commando aspects of it the green berets the delta force that kind of thing um but that's only one of the three branches the other branches are the psychological warfare apparatus and then there's the you know the part that i was alluding to before which is civil affairs which essentially is kind of an extension if you will of psychological warfare only using civilian cover effectively to carry it out but this was all institutionalized into the conception of the Special Operations Command and the Joint Special Operations Command. And that's where you can see some just really uh, mind-boggling uh, kind of an overlap with some of these communities in recent years. I mean, just for instance, a major figure in setting up JSOC uh, was Christopher Mellon. In fact, uh, they were. This is back when he was a congressional staffer, I think, for um, Sam Nunn's, I think, who became a Secretary of Defense under Bill Clinton. But uh, at one point, they actually wanted to make him um, the. Oh gosh, I can't remember what the name of the office is now, but it's the civilian uh, who essentially oversees the Special Operations Command. I think it's like the undersecretary of defense for low intensity conflicts and covert operations or something like that um but chris mellon was supposed to be the inaugural uh guy to head all of this but he turned it down but he would continue to work on a lot of this stuff in the pentagon including information warfare all the way up through the late 90s and for those of you unaware chris mellon in the last couple of years became a really big figure in the ufo disclosure initiatives he was one of the major guys behind um uh, tom DeLong's uh to the stars academy i know he's broken right. with him in recent years but mm -hmm. i mean he's been a, a big figure pushing a lot of disclosure stuff so yeah it's really interesting that he went from setting up the joint special operations command overseeing information warfare in the pentagon to um 
becoming an advocate for uh, disclosure for UFOs. Yeah, just as an aside, you talk about in the book, uh, you talk about the JSOC command. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't know if you heard our interview that we did with, um, yeah, JSOC, the SOCOM. Some of the guys that were in there in Vietnam that were um, basically, you know, a part of this whole group, and they were going behind the enemy lines. They were part of JSOC under Singlaub. Uh, but one of those guys, uh, guess Drew Hurst Beeson that I had on, he suspects that one of those guys was actually D.B. Cooper. I don't know if you've ever heard that. That's I've never heard that, but that would not surprise me. I mean, a lot yeah. of the guys, I mean, this would have, yeah, probably been kind of, if it was Sync Love, it would have been, um, actually, it might have been tied up with Phoenix, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember he was operating in, I think it was Phoenix, though, that he was operating in at that point in time. Yeah, yeah, it was all part, yeah, it was all part of that. Guys were good at jumping out of planes. <laughs> well, yeah. he was uh, he was actually one of the pioneers, yeah, of like uh, the plane jump stuff. They were so real just, good about jumping out of planes. That's where uh, they get the airborne shit from. Let's let's back, let's back up a little bit with uh El with not Ellsberg, but with Lansdale. Um, uh, I do want to hit something else about Ellsberg here in a little bit, but uh, Lansdale was also suspected of being involved with some of this drug trafficking in Southeast Asia. And he had all these kind of, when he gets over there, I mean, he's very much the man. I mean, he's helping to set up GM's government in South Vietnam. And he is also has all these connections with all these kind of weird, like, uh, religious groups that are in Vietnam. Can you go, go over some of that? Yeah, it was, it really was all kind of like the lead up to the Battle of Saigon, which was just crazy. But okay, so when he got into uh, Vietnam, essentially, uh, the situation is the French were managing the territory that they controlled largely through um, these three separate cults slash um, crime syndicates. Um, gosh, I can't remember the names of them off the top of my head, but they were effectively all funded in some capacity or other through drug trafficking. Um, at least one of them was basically a crime syndicate, and the other two, I think it was like the KO Dow, if I'm not mistaken, and I can't remember the other one. Yeah. Um, but uh, they were essentially cults. They had pretty considerable sizes uh, in the countryside, so they did have a fair amount of membership, and they also... Uh, all had their own militaries effectively and these were essentially the irregulars that supplemented uh the french military if you will so when lansdale gets in there he starts pitting these different groups of war with each other um in a bid to essentially to cut the french out of uh, the drug trade because he knew if he could break their hold on the heroin racket there, the French basically would be screwed and they would have to formally withdraw from Vietnam permanently. And this touched off uh, what became known as the Battle of Saigon. And it was more or less, I mean, frankly, an open gang war or something to that effect. I mean, I know at one point, um, Blansdale had like sat down uh, with the French commissioners and all of the military uh, journalists, or I mean, all the military officers and so forth. This was like after, I think, the Battle of Saigon. 
Vietnam was over with, but they had still made several attempts to assassinate a few members of his team and so forth. And he told them that he was going to withdraw his protection from them from this point going forward. And they asked him what that would what that meant. And he said, you'll see. And that night, essentially, he had Lucien Cohen and other members of his team drive by the French embassy and open up with machine guns and throw grenades and so forth into it. <laughs> and I mean, it was basically like a drive by shooting, more or less. <laughs> anyway, after that, the uh, the French threw in the uh, the white towel, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, it was nuts. It was really almost like I said before, I mean, an open gang warfare that landed was fighting uh between himself and the french there and i mean when he uh, was sent back to vietnam in the mid 60s uh, he had our bodies come in different shapes and sizes so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too that's the beauty of noom they build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions medical issues and other personal needs so your plan works for you Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com to essentially square things with uh what was the Corsican brotherhood the french mafia there right uh, because they were kind of worried that he was going to get back into muscling into their territory and maybe setting up like a rival drug lord or something and um yeah through lucian conan who was sort of regarded as, as his uh concierge with the drug trade uh he had to assure them that uh he wasn't interested in that in that uh this time around but yeah he was definitely a guy who had a lot of influence on the early use of the drug trade to uh, sponsor a lot of these covert operations. He seemed to have his hands in a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, that was like kind of one of the things that was most shocking to me working on this book, because I think originally I had kind of thought, oh, I'm going to write maybe a couple of paragraphs about Lansdale because he's big in psychological warfare, so i got to cover him. And then the more I started researching this guy, it just kind of grew and grew. Eventually, I ended up flying out to um, 
to San Francisco so I could go to Hoover to even go through his papers and whatnot. But I mean, he did essentially become really, I think, the main character in this book, if you will. Uh, so he grew from just sort of this, you know, almost like footnote into being a huge presence throughout the whole first book. Let's well, talk a little bit of. Go ahead, Adam. Oh, well, I want, well, Sophia, if there's something that you wanted to add to that or. Uh, I'm just, I think uh, if you want to say anything else before we pivot into more of this woo stuff, UFOs, new age movement and how this all relates, but. Do you want to cover anything else before that, Adam? Well, yeah, I was thinking about the the John Birch Society stuff. Oh, yeah. Which I, yeah we haven't even touched that. I, I, I know you're going to cover in uh, an, another book, but it seems like you, you did touch a little bit on the John Birch Society and some of its influence and some of its uh, connections to all this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, I definitely think that the John Birch Society was part of this psychological offensive by the Institute for American Strategy. And there was never really a, a direct link. But as I had talked about before, both of these groups really grew out of the milieu of the National Association of Manufacturers. And it was really explicit with jbs uh robert welch had been a senior figure in the national association of manufacturers he had distributed a lot of robert welch by the way for those of you unfamiliar was the founder and longtime president of the jbs uh, but he had uh, started out with his political advocacy in the National Association of Manufacturers. He had distributed most of his early anti-communist literature through the National Association of Manufacturers. And I think something like five of the six or five of the 11 or 12 founding members of the JBS were not just members of the National Association of Manufacturers, but they were former presidents of the National Association of yeah. Manufacturers. Uh, you had other uh, uh, former NAM presidents like Roger Milliken, you know, joined the JBS for um, after a time. So there was a tremendous overlap between the JBS and the National Association of Manufacturers. And then as it pertained to the Institute for American Strategy, one of the major figures in the IAS for years was Henry Regnery, uh, the founder of Regnery Press, which was a big uh, conservative publishing house that uh, famously issued uh, William Buckley's Man, God, and Yale, and a lot of those kind of quote-unquote classics. But Regnery was a uh, senior member of the board of the Institute for American Strategy, and um, was both a good friend of Robert Welch and a business partner of him. Robert Welch was actually a major shareholder in Regnery Press, and Regnery had released, or I should say published, a lot of uh, Welch's early anti-communist tracts as well. And Welch continued to be a significant shareholder in Regnery up through, uh, I think, at least the early 70s. So there was a lot of this overlapping membership and also corporate ownership between these different groups. And for the JBS, for me at least, one of the things that was really shocking and working on this book was uncovering um, just the concern that a lot of people had about uh, the conspiracy theories that JBS was issuing in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination, because they were really, really pushing the narrative that it was Castro and the Soviets right, who right. were behind the Kennedy assassination and that the U.S. government had been co-opted by the communists and was trying to cover this up. Now, a lot of people kind of forget this, but the Warren Commission, a big 
part of why we actually had the Warren Commission in the first place. And don't get me wrong, the Warren Commission is disinformation, but it was started to counter the disinformation that was being issued by the John Birch Society. Mm-hmm. And it's really incredible because the Pentagon had this elaborate plan uh, for a preemptive first strike, uh, basically the onset of a nuclear war against the Soviet Union during the late and towards the end of 1963 and going into 64 they were really angling for a preemptive strike against uh, the people's republic of china to help our efforts in vietnam so i see the john birch society with its ties to the military through this kind of overlap with the IAS and these other groups as a ploy to try to basically whip the public into a fury to where a nuclear exchange would be acceptable. And then conversely, from the CFR crowd and these other people, there was a counter propaganda blitz. I mean, this was something I got into with my Kubrick presentation, but I very much see some of these films like Dr. Strangelove, uh, which came out, was actually supposed to come out November 22nd, 1963. Um, Because of what happened on that day to get pushed back uh, to... Uh, early January, but I mean, it was definitely very much, I think, a part of this counteroffensive. And then you can throw in something like Seven Days in May and some of these other yep. films that were coming out at that time as well. Which I just watched for the first time last night, by the way. Yeah, it's freaking good, man. It's very yeah. underrated. John Frankenheimer, man, some really interesting stuff he was doing in that whole era as well as Kubrick. Which Manchurian Candidate was another one of his films. Mm-hmm. and seconds too that's another one that i think was really pivotal in a lot of this too but you know it's just fascinating again kind of going back to what i was saying with the cfr and the national association of manufacturers so the cfr has all of your kind of mainstream media outlets and them is doing this grassroots stuff and you really see uh, the end results of that playing out with the kennedy assassination where there's sort of this battle for the narrative being waged on the one hand through Hollywood and then on the other hand through these groups like the John Birch Society. I mean, to me, this is another layer of the Kennedy assassination, even looking beyond what actually happened, who was behind it, that kind of thing. It's just utterly fascinating on a lot of levels. And I mean, how this really was so crucial to the destiny of America, because if one side had won out here, I mean, you know, the world we live in now would probably be quite different, to put it mildly. That's well, sure. you talk about some uh, a little bit about the the JBS stuff about you know, how they got obsessed with the Illuminati. Yeah, and I know you're going to go into that more, but the, in, in in another, I think in the the second volume. But you know, I mean, the, this is one of the interesting things that they got kind of obsessed with that and how yeah, that all were- starts. Yeah, they were the ones who really revived a lot of the Illuminati conspiracy theories. But just for the purposes of what we've been discussing here, why that's uh, really significant. So up until I think it was like 65 or 66 when Welch started invoking the Bavarian Illuminati. But like up to that point, a lot of the stuff that he was putting out, it was, you know, I mean, it was over the top. But I mean, most of it was reasonably plausible okay i mean again it was 
the distortion of a lot of the facts and so forth. But, you know, if you go back and you look at the Bolshevik revolution, you know, it's definitely true that Wall Street was enabling the Bolsheviks at some points. Now, they had their own agendas for doing that. But if you manipulate some of this stuff in a certain way, you can create a plausible scenario for how communists had infiltrated the government. But when he started invoking the Bavarian Illuminati, pretty much all plausibility was thrown out the window. Now it's just starting to become increasingly more and more absurd. And that incidentally uh, coincided with the collapse of JBS membership in the same era, too. And this is, you know, again, they were at the pinnacle of their influence around 64, 65. I mean, they were huge. Yeah. And getting Goldwater, the Republican nomination, they were crucial to that. They had a lot of political clout at this point when Welch started talking about the Illuminati. So personally, I think that people were so concerned with the saber rattling, what might have happened if some of the more radical elements of the Pentagon had gotten their way and gotten that nuclear exchange that um, Welch was told to take a dive, you know, you need to start talking about something ridiculous now, dude. And that was, well, he might've actually totally believed it too. I mean, there's that possibility. There's that possibility, but he never even really brought up any of that stuff. I mean, maybe they might've had somebody convince him of it or something, but it just, it seems really convenient that he brought that out at the pinnacle of their influence and basically destroyed the organization's credibility at a time when uh, they had arguably become a real threat to world peace, to put it mildly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, I mean, after 64, the Goldwater is defeated. I mean, it does seem like they probably reduce in membership but it seems it seems like it would be natural in an election year like that that people would flock to them and then the guy is defeated and then it kind of like it, well it no kind actually their membership was actually their membership was still high up through 65 up to about 66 when the illuminati yeah. stuff so no it didn't that's another thing it did not taper off after goldwater lost um Again, that kind of goes back into the whole, you know, when cults fail scenario. I mean, a lot of times, actually, when doomsday right. prophecies don't pan out, it actually brings together the core membership even more so in the fanaticism. And a lot of people don't realize, too, that JPS is still around. They are yeah. still actually around as an organization. It's just that their their thunder has been taken by a lot of different areas. And I think that that was you know, well, I yeah, that, I mean, Welch is absolutely passe compared to Bill Cooper, Alex Jones. I mean, let's right, not kid right, ourselves. Right. Yeah. Which, by the way, if you, uh, if whenever you get a uh, sugar daddy, sugar babies, or junior mints, you can think of Robert Welch. <laughs> yes. Good old candy manufacturer. <laughs> so if you go to the movie theater and get some sugar babies, think about, uh, think about virulent anti communism. Think about your precious bodily fluids. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I, I would like to. We'd like to touch a little bit about the U about the influence on ufology, and uh, there is one interesting link that I I found really fascinating, which was uh, Jacques Vallée's connection to a lot of this. We're gonna bring yeah. Jacques Vallée into the conspiracy, guys. 
Yeah, no, it was interesting because I found out that a lot of Valet's earlier works were actually published by Regnery along with some stuff yeah. by Jacques Lesberger and a few of these others. And so this in and of itself is weird because Regnery, as I'd said before, was pretty much only exclusively interested in publishing uh, right-wing tracks, essentially. You know, these were guys pushing people like William Buckley. So not only are they publishing these ufo books but i mean this is you know again like in the late 60s early 70s they're not even publishing like nuts and bolts type ufo books they're publishing this really like woo woo mystical ufo ufology that valet and heineck were pushing and then also right, berger right. had kind of gone in with that as well which well, you know heineck i think had been convinced by valet that you know there was a lot more going on than yeah, they published, I think, the 75 book that Valet and Heineck had co-authored together. I can't remember the name of it now. I think it was like was... Dimensions or something like that. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it was Dimensions, but it was... Oh, gosh, I can't remember right now. But it was at the point when Heineck had started to go in more for the sort of like interdimensional, um, you know, hypothesis right. more so than like the nuts and bolts stuff. But yeah, it was just really interesting that this was the specific brand of ufology that they chose to embrace the time when this was definitely a distinctly minority opinion. It's only really been in the last couple of years that I think the sort of, I guess, quote unquote, ultra dimensional, interdimensional, whatever, or ultra terrestrial uh, hypothesis has started to gain a lot of currency amongst uh, ufologists. Cause for many years, it was always the kind of nuts and bolts, um, physical explanations that were put out there. Right. Yeah. It's been, it's been, it's been getting a lot of press now recently. I mean, I think since um, people like Diana Pasuka, you know, religious studies professors have started really moving into this and have found an interest in it. What? I mean, I think that it yeah, makes sense. I mean, I think it makes sense a lot more from the perspective of Lansdale as well. Uh, and just the use, you know, the attempts to try to weaponize mythology, because this really was taking UFOs into a, you know, a very spiritual, even religious directions, essentially. And right. I think that that has to be given as a serious possibility, because the other thing about Valet that's interesting with him being published by Regnery about around this time, i.e. the mid-60s, early 70s, is this is essentially the time when the Soviet Union is also going through its kind of <clears throat> proverbial age of Aquarius, if you will. And they've really started to embrace the whole ancient astronauts hypothesis well before chariots of the gods starts to gain traction in the West. They were starting to look into this back in the late fifties as state policy, because again, you know, theoretically there's supposed to be an atheistic regime, so, okay, all of this mystical woo-woo stuff in the Bible. Well, Jesus was actually a physical alien from Zeta Reticula. So you got all that cleared now. It's all, you know, just science stuff mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with spirituality. It makes total sense to a certain branch of the Soviets. And it also plays into older traditions of um, you know, Soviet cosmos and that kind of ideology, cosmos, and you know, because this stuff was so thoroughly ingrained in their scientific 
community uh, going all the way back to the early days of the Soviet Union. And for those of you unfamiliar with Russian co- with the Russian cosmetists, this is almost a kind of proto transhumanist ideology that started to emerge first in the Russian Empire around the turn of the 20th century and then in the early Soviet Union. And it was obsessed with space exploration, with life extension, with a lot of this other kind of stuff. But also some of the cosmos were really taken with ESP and things like that as well. But uh, as a movement, it was kind of natural that they would drift into ufology mm-hmm. and they started to make a real uh, resurgence after Stalin's death, kind of going into the sixties. And this is the same time uh, when the Soviet union started to really formally embark upon ESP research and all this other kind of stuff again. So you had this very kind of proto new agey air unfolding in the Soviet union at this point in time. So Valet's theories, even though they were really woo, over here, they started to gain some traction with uh, some Soviet ufologists, and he had opened up a dialogue with them going into the mid-1960s. And this had led to a really peculiar incident when the Russian Air Authority had started to open itself up to reports of UFOs from Soviet citizens. And this is really interesting because for many years, Rand and a lot of these other think tanks had been obsessed with how UFO reports would affect American air defense measures, if we, especially if we had an exchange with the Soviet Union, because it could be a real issue, but not as much as it would be to the Russians, because we didn't have a total top-down form of command. We had a much more decentralized command, which made our responses more flexible. But the Soviets, everything had to be approved in the upper levels. So what would happen if they opened themselves up to UFO reports? Well, they found out in 1967. Their air defense was completely overwhelmed for, I think, the 24 hours that they allowed UFO reports. So what that means effectively is the United States could have launched a preemptive strike there, and the Soviet air defense would have been totally powerless to mount any kind of countermeasure towards it. They would have probably been totally wiped out in the exchange. So, to my mind, it's absolutely insane to think that the U.S. intelligence community would not be interested in how something like that would affect the Soviet Union. And I have the absolute highest opinion of Jacques Vallée. I don't think that he was ever necessarily a conscious agent for something like this. But do I think that he could have been nudged to try to push this to his counterparts in the Soviet Union because certain figures in the security services were curious to see what would happen? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that they would have been pleased with the results of what happened with that. Suffice to say, the Soviet Union uh, put the kibosh on the UFO reports uh, after that. So in addition to the utility of ufology and and things like, you know, finding these these gaps in the, you know, chain mail of, of the Russian materialism, uh, you think Psy might have served a similar purpose in, in Psy research? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that and just more broadly speaking, the human potential movement, because, again, I don't think that it's ever really been seriously considered as how this worked as a form of psychological warfare against the Russians, even though by the late 1980s, uh, you know, you have Gorbachev doing the, the, you know, the famous hot tub diplomacy at Esalen, right? Um, but again, you know, going back to Russian cosmism, this was a really big ideology within the Soviet scientific community. And this helped uh, coin the sort of concept that we now think of as the Gnosisphere. Uh, Deschardes, of course, played a big role in this, but also there were a lot of the Soviet cosmists. Um, I know there's one guy specifically, I can't remember his name now, but this was really big in the Soviet Union. The Gnosisphere stuff really didn't start to catch on in the United States until the 60s and 70s. And it's always been kind of confined to like the new age community, if you will. Uh, Barbara Marx Hubbard, for instance, was who was also Daniel Ellsberg's sister-in-law, was a really big uh, proponent of this kind of stuff. But in the Soviet Union, it was practically an article of faith for elements of the scientific community and increasingly some of the technocratic components of the state. So even though theoretically the Soviet Union was an atheistic country, this did provide a kind of covert form of spirituality in a lot of these circles. And once again, it kind of begs the question, well, would we have tried to exploit that? When you look at the development of the New Age movement, when you see a person like Barbara Marx Hubbard, who again was used to establish ties with a lot of her counterparts in the Soviet Union while simultaneously working in the, what was it, the task force Delta thing with John Alexander in the Pentagon in the 1980s, along with her, you know, again, her uh, in-law, Daniel Ellsberg, it, uh, you know, it raises a lot of interesting questions about what might have been going on with some of these players. Yeah. So that was what I kind of wanted to circle too, was uh, Ellsberg. He had a lot of uh, interesting uh new age kind of beliefs himself and like some ideas that he things that yeah. he liked to do yeah i mean he was kind of around the Esling crowd in the early days too i was actually kind of right. surprised to learn also that he um had been involved with psychedelics going back to the very early 60s in fact he had actually been dosed through like a study at rand and then also through um Gosh, I can't remember the doctor now. He's one of the early LSD doctors in uh, L.A. He had uh, he was the guy who had given LSD to like Cary Grant, a lot of these other um, you know famous people. But yeah, I mean that's also why it's kind of absurd when you know you get into the seventies and like the Watergate plumbers are talking about how they're going to dose Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, to try to discredit him in public or something. It's like Ellsberg had been tripping for like over a decade at that point. <laughs> right. You know, it's just like, he's going to be like, oh, okay, I'm tripping right. again. I mean, like, it's again, like when you kind of look at the theater of some of this stuff. But yeah, uh, I mean, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Stephen. But yeah, Ellsberg had been involved in the early psychedelic community. Um, I think actually his wife, uh, Patricia Ellsberg, this was Barbara's sister, was probably even more involved in some of this New Age stuff and that kind of thing. But yeah, Ellsberg was kind of tied into all of this as well. So, I mean, again, this is another 
you know, sort of aspect of uh, the new left that you can kind of look to and see where some of these psychological warfare measures potentially reached into. Because again, Ellsberg did have a lot of connections to the psychedelic, you know, kind of the head scene on the one hand, and then through his sister-in-law and his wife, um, a lot of figures that were key figures in the new age movement as well. So it's, <laughs> it's a very uh, disturbing set of circumstances when you kind of step back and like, look at the bigger picture of this stuff. One of the one of the things that I found interesting, and it was just something that you mentioned uh, in one of the in in one of the paragraphs. It was they were talking about uh, they wanted to push even in in the seventies. They wanted to push the Strategic Defense Initiative, so Star Wars, basically the you know weaponization of space, and a group that they that these that these guys in this think tank were trying to were getting to promote this was the church the church universal and triumphant which mm. was elizabeth claire prophet's group yeah and i just thought that is but that takes me back something that i've mentioned several times on the show uh, that's a connection to you know Michael Flynn and you know him basically completely ripping off really the prayer that he did at the QAnon, which he got from the QAnon conference that he got from basically verbatim from Lizzie McClare Prophet. So I thought that that was an interesting connection. Yeah, no, it was actually uh, the American Security Council. I think they had uh, General General Daniel Graham, who had actually gone to speak at some of the Church of Universal Triumphant conferences or something like that back in the late 1980s yeah. when he was trying to drum up support for the Strategic Defense Initiative. But yeah, I mean, and this is again where, in some senses... The UFO community, I think, was very uh, was very useful to this because there was this whole narrative that was kind of put out for during the 80s and then for years afterwards, like through, you know, Colonel Philip J. Corzo, for instance, in the day after Roswell, where, you know, the actual purpose of the Strategic Defense Initiative is it was it was to protect us from an invasion from hostile aliens. It wasn't really to weaponize space to terrorize the public down here it was protect us from the aliens you know but we we can't tell people that so yeah yeah and you have that weird quote from well reagan said something when he was president about you know it's it, yeah was it oftentimes what, i think it would be easier if we faced yeah. a, an alien invasion or an invasion from space or something like right, that yeah right yeah right but yeah, then there's super and, super practical applications like uh, just the the overwhelming um, of UFO reports could you know damage the the defensive systems of the air commands of you know either country which were uh, integral to nuclear war. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of factors to where you had to kind of carefully manage the UFO community. So, you know, it could essentially be a benefit to the security services because on top of everything else, I mean, the Soviets were also very interested in uh, our domestic UFO community because, again, you know, I suspect that a fair amount of UFO reports, I mean, not a ton of them, but at least a decent amount of them, 
uh, are probably of classified weapon systems that were, you know, testing Oh, yeah, down and of things course. like that. So, you know, once again, I mean, you would be foolish to think that the Soviets wouldn't be interested in this. I mean, it, Yeah. you know, sign up for a couple of UFO groups and monitor these reports. I mean, it's a real easy way to gather intelligence in that sense. So you can kind of sort of see why they might have been concerned about like Paul Benowitz, for instance. I mean, he was the um, the New Mexico ufologist that uh, Richard Doty and all of these people around the aviary effectively drove insane. Right. Uh, but again, if he was, you know, potentially filming classified weapons, you can at least understand why initially they might have been concerned about that. You can question why how they approached the, you know, their methods for countering him for doing that, but at least you can understand why they might have been an issue with it. Yeah, I think in um, Magic Men, they talk about um, you mean Mirage Men? The Mirage Men. Yeah, thank you. In Mirage Men, they talk about how basically that what he was filming was drones, essentially early drone technology, and this is something the early the late seventies, early eighties, and they were starting to work on, and that was completely secret at that time. Yeah, I mean, I think that that would probably be the most plausible explanation. But then again, I mean, it doesn't entirely make sense, though, because by all accounts, um, Benowitz was pretty right wing. You know, I mean, he was a really Yeah. patriotic types. And you kind of wonder, like, couldn't somebody from the Air Force have just gone to him and said, oh, that's it's not UFOs. That's that's classified Well, weapons you're filming. yeah. Can you just stop it, please? <laughs> Well, I, I I think part of the purpose with Benowitz was to create a narrative. Yes, I mean, I think I it think was it was. I think it was basically on Doty's part, and probably the FOZ was. Let's see what we can get away with. Let's see what we what narrative we can create. And it really did create a narrative. Yeah, because this was definitely at a time when Doty was seeding a lot of these different narratives. It wasn't just Right. Benowitz. I mean, he's also, um, Linda Moulton Howe was another one yeah, that he tried to, yeah. And, you know. um, oh, the authors, too, about the uh, behind the first Roswell books. Um, shoot, I can't remember the main guy's name now off the top of my head. They also wrote the book on the Philadelphia Experiment. Um, Uh, yeah, more, yeah, 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 more, Richard. yeah, Yeah, Bill Moore, correct. yeah. But, yeah, this is at a point in time when they were really going all out to kind of seed this mythos into the American public. And this also, I mean, I think contributed to uh, really the rise of conspiratainment because it became uh, this increasingly absurd narrative, when, especially when you started getting into the, you know, the deep underground bases. I mean, by the... You know, the late 80s, early 90s, it's gotten to the point where um, what the gray aliens have taken over the Dulce base and the Well, Delta Force is being sent down there to have wars yeah, with the Phil them. Schneider stuff. And, and I mean, it, it, really, I mean, it even spawns a TV special. I mean, it spawns a UFO cover up live. Yep. But all that mythology was wrapped up into the X-Files later on. Yeah, it was, it That's was. where all the X-Files mythology comes from is all that stuff in the 80s. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, that was kind of the accumulation, I think, of this really turning into a full-blown uh, pop culture phenomenon. It really was through the X-Files uh, So and a in lot addition of the... to conspiratainment really coming into its own in the 80s, you also talk about how JSOC and SOCOM really, uh, you know, come to prominence. And this was all due to a lot of these efforts that we've been exploring from 
you know, the previous century. Yeah. I mean, you know, as I talked about before, I mean, it was a lot of these accolades with Edward Lansdale and it was even people like Christopher Mellon. Um, you know, the guy has been so big in UFO disclosure, but I mean, also a member of the, um, the fabulously wealthy and powerful Mellon family of Pittsburgh. So, yeah, I mean, it really was a accumulation of a lot of these different vested interests, um, especially, you know, coming in the aftermath of both the experiences in Vietnam and the church committee, Uh, on the one hand, you know, this had resulted in the CIA getting kind of slapped on the wrist here and there. It was a little difficult for it to manage covert operations quite the way it had during the good old days. And then on the other hand, um, the limitations of the CIA, I think, had really been exposed uh, when trying to manage something like the Phoenix program. Because it's, you know, again, the F the CIA does a lot of stuff really well, but it's not really designed to try to manage a counterinsurgency across an entire country like Vietnam. Um, you really need the military to do something like that because the CIA just doesn't have the personnel, quite frankly, to manage something like that for an extended period of time. I mean, they've always been more reliant on, you know, kind of mercenary forces. Um, they don't have an especially large detachment of, you know, qualified military officers that can do that kind of stuff. And even in those cases, they frequently had to be supplemented by um the special forces community within the military so it kind of came became obvious increasingly to a lot of people going into the 80s that you know you just needed to kind of cut out the middleman if you will and that really came to fruition um during the bush two presidency and again that's probably led to a lot of the issues that we've had in recent years i mean a lot of these people like flynn uh, McChrystal, you know, I mean, all came out of that kind of culture around Jay Saw. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can draw, you could, I think you could draw a straight line between somebody like Michael Flynn and, and Lansdale. I mean, just in like ideas. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. I mean, different approaches and so forth. And I mean, yeah, it's, you know, it's quite a rabbit hole with all of that. And I mean, I don't think we've seen the last of it at all, certainly with the uh, the current election we've got looming here in 2024. We sometimes try to avoid current events, but, you know, I'm I'm real curious of where you think this is all, where where it's all going this year, Stephen. Probably the only person I haven't talked to about this. Well, I mean, I think it's going to be absolutely insane. There's no question. <laughs> I mean, I could... <laughs> I could see oh, all we saw we're recording this on the uh, 16th, the evening of the 16th, but the Iowa caucus was just last night. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's obvious things are going to be absolutely no holds barred with this. And I mean, I think it's just because, again, a lot of these different groups that we've been kind of outlining throughout all of this are just yeah. they're becoming increasingly desperate right now. And I mean, uh, I mean, I think for the Democratic establishment, especially, I mean, the support of the biden administration for israel has just been an absolute disaster and i mean again i think a lot of people have already been you know becoming increasingly disillusioned with biden leading up to this but just the perpetual support for ukraine now coupled with what's happening in israel and just you know i mean what could potentially where we could be going from this i mean you're now seeing um escalations with the uh the hoodies in yemen and all this other stuff kind of playing out as well i mean as we're recording this you know the u.s has just started to engage in airstrikes in yemen i mean this is 
just an absolute powder keg. Um, you know, I know that people have been kind of dismissing the stuff when the military was floating around the prospect of reviving the draft, but I, I think that that should probably be taken more seriously than a lot of people are. Uh, we're getting into that kind of environment right now. And this kind of like wow. the ascendancy of the conspiratainment with this real time interaction with political actors that we see now in this like hyper method. I and mean, that's, that's going to be insane. It gets crazier every year. And this election cycle, like to see that relationship is going to be crazy. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, more broadly speaking though, I mean, it's like what's really happened with like this, with online culture, uh, especially I think for generation Z, I mean, this is something I've been doing some shows on lately, but when you sort of look at like some of the, the gamer subcultures and things that have grown out of that, especially with some of the infiltration by groups like the order of the nine angles, the temple yep. of blood and some of the more obscure ones. So you have this whole, almost like subculture of like grooming that's been done on a massive scale where these kids are, you know, just going into like gainer chats and stuff and they're randomly being exposed to uh, child pornography or these other kinds of extreme porn. They're being groomed into torturing animals and things like that. They're being coerced into uh, posting nude photos of them stuff, things like that. These kids are seeing... Uh, other individuals commit suicide online just this whole sort of grotesque subculture that's grown out of the chans and well, you got to think about this right so yeah. we kind of know now it's interesting there's a, well there's, there, there's a certain formula right for well, i shouldn't say formula but there's a lot of common characteristics that a lot of serial killers share yeah, including exposure to pornography and war pornography at young, young ages, killing and torturing animals, right? Which is the kind of stuff right now that a lot of people are being pushed to embrace, not just in kind of an individualized scale, but a really massive scale. Mm -hmm. So you got to kind of wonder why would you want to try to groom almost an entire generation into sociopaths? Yeah, and the one really logical explanation I can think for that is you want to get a younger generation on war footing. That's pretty strong, man. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, well, that's where we're heading. Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Well, I really, I mean, I just going to reiterate that. I really do think that this next year, well, this year now is just going to be crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a lot at stake, no doubt. And I mean, frankly, I, I think we're screwed regardless of who wins. I mean, I think that's the only real projection we can say with any kind of accuracy, unfortunately. Well, I think we're probably more screwed if others, if, if, if Trump wins by my, my personal opinion, but you know, it might depend how you look at things. I guess. <laughs> it just seems to me that with Biden and everything, it's just been, we've just gone back to like this kind of weird business as usual kind of kind of way and it's just not really working yeah only that, we're only that we're falling into like wars left and right, here. right. and it's well that's that's business as yeah. usual yeah you know so it it, it just seems like that's going to be the biggest thing is going to be that that will be the biggest thing that we'll get to i think we'll, we'll get trump back in office 
And I mean, I will say this. I mean, I absolutely despise Trump with every fiber of my being, but I don't, I think Trump at least is not insane enough to think that the United States can wage all of these different wars on the same front. That is the one saving grace that I think that he has versus what, I don't even know if it's Biden at this point. I mean, does anybody even really think that he's running the country at this point? But I mean, the group around the State Department, Blinken, Newland, I mean, yeah, these are the same. Yeah, these are the same group. I mean, Newland is married to freaking Robert Kagan. I mean, these are the same psychopaths that drove the Bush II administration. I mean, let's not kid ourselves here. These people are insane. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're, we really just... Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, what I'm hoping is that World War III doesn't break out. I don't think that that's what's going to happen, but I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to increase much more the popularity it's, of the idea yeah. of America first is what it's going to do. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, and then on the other hand, I mean, I think there's also potential prospects of a civil war of some kind breaking out too. I mean, there's just a lot of minefields. Yeah. I mean, you know, I could see. Well, that's what We're saving that for 2025. I mean, I think that that's, you know, essentially where you could sort of look at the two paths that we're faced with. Here right. Where, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. You know, you go with Biden, you're potentially looking at World War Three. If Trump prevails, I mean, I think there's a good chance that the different uh, factions in the security services will plunge the country into a full blown civil war. So, I mean, it's uh, it's not a great situation either way, to put it mildly. Or a little combination of both in either outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And it's weird because there's a movie coming out about an American uh, an updated yeah, yeah, Civil great, War. Great timing. Yeah, for real. Oh, what they're remaking Red Dawn? <laughs> no, it's so called Civil that. War. I think it's, it's called oh, Big Budget. Okay, yeah. okay. Just what we need. Right. Um, what can we? Uh, what can we expect from from book two? And what kind of timeline we got on there? Well, I'm hoping to start on book two by the summer, ideally. I'm actually working on a Kubrick book right now. I'm putting together some of the lectures I did for you and some of the cool. other uh, stuff that I've been doing. So I'm hoping to get that finished in the next couple of months here. Yeah, anyone who saw uh, last year's Strange Realities conference and uh, Stephen's presentation probably got a preview of that material. Right. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I kind of think, too, that it's really related to a lot of the stuff that I'm getting into, because, I mean, the art tends to focus more on how, like, fringe cultures have been manipulated. But as I was sort of talking about before, I think Kubrick was sort of part of this response against the JBS. So he's kind of indicative of how, um, you know, some of the stuff has played out in more mainstream circles. So really excited with that um hoping to like i said get that knocked out in the next couple of months and then hopefully around maybe june july i can start working a book too i don't know how long that will take because like i said it's going to require a lot of heavy research but i'm hoping i can get it out maybe early 2025 heavy research as in very heavy books like no one can see but he's got yeah. increasing mountain of books in the background yeah, trust me, The one of the biggest stacks back there is just for, like, all the Rasha Krushan material. I've got to sort oh, through yeah. it. It's going to be insane. Well, what about the Epstein books? 
Are you still working on those? Yeah, I'm still working. That's kind of the other thing, though, that's nice about the Kubrick book, because it's actually going to enable me to kind of get out some of the stuff that I've been uh, ha- that I've been saving for the Epstein book. So I suppose, in a sense, the Kubrick one is maybe partly a, uh, a continuation of that, because we will be looking at some of those uh, blackmail rings in the Kubrick book, that's for sure. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Are you getting into... Um... The movie producer on Long Island. Are you getting into that on uh, in the in, in the Kubrick books? Oh, Roy Radin, you mean? Roy yeah. Radin. Yeah, oh, you yeah. talk about any of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I yeah. definitely will be getting into Roy Radin. I mean, you that's got to. Where, getting... That's where I think if there's any truth to the eyes wide shut stuff that he saw or witnessed some things, I think it was the Roy Radin stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Because Kubrick even lived in Long Island for a time uh, in the late 60s before he relocated to the UK permanently. But there's there's a lot of crazy stuff about all of that that I'm going to be getting into in the Kubrick book. Um, Yeah, I've actually come to identify quite a bit with Stanley Kubrick because uh, much like him, I always look at these projects like they're going to be this kind of quick one-off. I think when he was getting ready to make Eyes Wide Shut, he thought that the filming would be finished like in six months. Um, I think about a year and a half later, he was uh, forced to revise those plans. But, you know, I'm kind of in the same thing. I start <laughs> these projects and then they just sort of go on for years and years. Before before you tell people uh, where they can find the book, Stephen, uh, the cover of the book... Yeah, we touched what's on that. The, what's the yeah? What's the motif here? It was actually inspired by uh, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. The beneath, awesome. the, beneath the planet, the, yeah, beneath this Battle of the Apes, the second yeah. one, uh, because I love the sort of nuclear cult that they have in that, and I thought it was very right. appropriate uh, to the book because uh, really at the heart of it is U.S. nuclear policy. And I got to sh- give a shout out to my ar- artist Elmo Marie. She did a fantastic job in this. She is absolutely freaking amazing. Um, really excited to start working with her again on the cover of the Kubrick book but yeah she really outdid herself with this it's uh, it's an amazing cover so who are all these characters on here that's that's Lansdale at the top uh top left yeah, yeah. with the harmonica yeah 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 one of and them would one a of the reference them to them. project penguin with the the penguin head Oh uh, no, that's the aviary. Actually, that was uh, oh, okay. The, okay. the aviary that had the code name Penguin, and then also you've got Adrena Puharic on there, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, uh, and oh, Licklider, I believe. Yeah, yeah, J- uh, yeah, JCR Licklider, who was one of the major people in setting up the ARPANET, and then of course below that you've got the what the gray alien and the UFO yeah. person and the uh, the survivalist all sort of crawling up the steps to the nuclear bomb the golden uh the golden icbm with the alpha and omega on it it's pretty great yeah right you know uh you know dr future worked for one of the guys in the aviary right yeah no he's told me about that before yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) uh right patterson yeah no that's that's priceless i mean what he he oh, he addressed the UN too at one point, right? Like one of those like woo woo uh, new age groups within. Yeah, it was something. It was something that was going on in Montreal. Oh my goodness! I and he's uh, gotten on the stage of uh, Mystery Science Theater three thousand, which is why I will forever love Mike because he is the man for doing that. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, he's something else. What's um, been uh, What's been going on with the with the farm? 
Oh, well, you know, we just keep uh, plugging along. I've uh, started to do the Albacore series again. I've been talking a bit about Catalina Island, but we've got the, the Zoom party actually tomorrow. At least, well, it'll be passed by the time this is out. But yeah, I've been starting to really delve into that again. I've been doing a lot more movie stuff lately. Just, I don't know, it's been kind of fun. We did a show like on Jalo that was really fun. I uh, just recently did a show on Leave the World Behind. Uh, a couple of other ones. I'm really hoping to finally do my elusive Hawkwind show. Hell Next yeah. to Blue Oyster called Hawkwind is another band I'm freaking obsessed with. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. Uh, shut up. Had Miguel Connors on to talk about Elvis a bit too. That's been, because um, I was really into sort of that, uh, oh, you know, kind of Southern Americana, that kind of mystical Elvis, Highway 61, Robert Johnson, Stagger, Lee, right. thing, all yeah, that right. era. So it's been really kind of fun to revisit some of that stuff now that I'm a little older. Cool. Awesome. Well, look forward to that stuff. Definitely had to check it out. Yeah. All right. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, where can people find you and where can people find the book? Well, you can uh, hear the uh, shows. I have one free show up uh, weekly on Mondays and also two uh, shows for subscribers. And then at the upper tier, you get the uh, the uh, additional shows and a bunch of other goodies, including the Zoom party presentations and everything else. And this is all for the Farm Podcast. You can find that through pretty much a Google search doing the Farm Podcast Mach 2. Uh, so yeah, definitely keep that in mind. And then the book is uh, The Art, The Secret History of Cyborg Conspiratainment and the Shattering Reality Book 1, which you can find at the Farm's official store, which is the Farm Podcast, all one word, dot store. And also the physical copies are available at Amazon. So there you go. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you for being on the show, as always. And, Thank you guys uh, so much for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah. And guys, you know where you can find us. You can find us anywhere podcasts are. And we are also on YouTube as well. I get Paranormal Podcast channel. And uh, Sergio can tell you where to find our Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. We're going to be delivering some more uh, weekly episodes. Uh, got some in the works. So be yep. on the lookout for that. We sure do. All right, guys, thank you so much. And uh, we will be back uh, next time with Robert Guffey on Conspiracy. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.